My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. It is my privilege to be able to say happy Palm Sunday. Did you know it's Palm Sunday today? We could clap for Palm Sunday. Yeah, sure. You know, I remember I grew up in a church and uh, you know what Palm Sunday was about? As a little boy getting a new weapon. It's called the Palm Branch, right? Some of you know, I grew up with four brothers. Everything was a weapon. And with uh, three grandsons, everything is still a weapon to little boys. I've just really picked up on that. So hopefully we're going to find out today that Palm Sunday is a little bit more than weapons, <laughs> a little bit more than palm branches as well. And we will get there uh, in our passage this morning. It's an awesome passage. God's done some work in my own heart about Jesus. But here's what I want to do. I want to begin by asking a question. And I wonder if anybody's asked you this question. If it if somebody has, it probably took you back, uh, back a bit. So they, th- here's the question. I want you to know, or it's a statement, actually, I should say it's a statement. I want you to know you're not who I thought you were. Really? If somebody has said that to you, hey, I want you to know. In fact, this is why I took you out to lunch. <laughs> you are not who I thought you were. And you go, okay. You want to elaborate, you know, as you grip your seat? You're not who I thought you were. Interesting question. Probably sounds pretty bold. And maybe your mind immediately goes, they're going to say something negative. Which there are negative things people could say when they say, you're not who I thought you were. You know, maybe it's your supervisor, oops. Maybe it's three months, six months into your new job, oops. You're not who I thought you were. You know, you interviewed so well. I was so blown away by your resume, by your interview, by your knowledge of our company. You know, that stuff was just so impressive. And I want you to know, obviously, we hired you because you are our top candidate. But three months in, six months in, man, I'm disappointed. You're not who I thought you were. That's not a good lunch, is it? Even if he's buying, it's not a good lunch. Or maybe, you know, you have somebody, you know, I I think because I was involved in sports, a coach. And you're halfway through your season or or through your first season. And your coach says, you know, I got to tell you something. So what's that? You're not who I thought you were. What? You know, when I watched you in the early part of this season, I said, that kid has talent. That kid is going to blossom this year. And you didn't. And it's not because you had so many injuries. It's just you didn't work hard. I thought you would work hard. You're not the competitor I thought you were. You're not pushing yourself. You're not who I thought you were. Now, probably some of you have heard that phrase, maybe even from a parent or a coach or a teacher or a boss or whatever. I'm sorry. I know that's hard to hear. It can be really hard to hear. Maybe somebody who thought they were your good friend is the one who takes you out to lunch. And that person says, you know, I got to tell you, maybe there's even some tears welling up in their eyes. You're not who I thought you were. And it's even more sad 
when it's a spouse, a person you're married to. But I need to get positive because this sounds like such a downer so far. So let me talk about there's a positive potential side to that. You're not who I thought you were. There really is. When somebody says, you know, I'm sorry, I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but I was not very impressed with you when I first met you. (laughs) And as we've become friends, as I've watched your life, as I've seen your heart, as I've seen how you have gone through some incredibly difficult things in your life and the way you have handled that and the way you have just been a blessing to so many other people, I'm blown away by you. You are not who I thought you were. You are so much more. It's so interesting to me. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who are very unassuming, right? Often they're very quiet. They don't talk much, but they're great listeners. You know, people like that. I sure do. You know, they're not the one who always wants to take the lead, but they are incredible servants and they just support others. They're so unselfish. I love people like that. I wish I was more like that. You're not who I thought you were. You're so much more amazing. It's like I've seen this hidden gem blossom before my eyes. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Well, this morning I want to talk about a person, you'll know him, who may have been the most misunderstood person, and a lot of that is revealed through a triumphal entry is actually the theological term for Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. You talk about people who thought he was someone different. It was a whole bunch of people on that day that he rode from Bethany, that small little town two miles east of Jerusalem, into the city to present himself as Messiah. And yet here's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see that though so many people, Jesus, I guess, disappointed because he wasn't who they thought he was, is more amazing and more awesome than we can ever imagine. Amen? He is. John 12. If you have your Bible, let's turn there. John chapter 12 is going to be our passage this morning. And I'm going to pick up in verse 12, and uh, we'll go through 19 this morning. John chapter 12. Verse 12 says this, and the words will be up on the screen. If you have your Bible, that'd be awesome if you want to turn there. We read this, the next day the great crowd had come for the festival, that's the feast of Passover, the festival, that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now, it's really important that I give you some context, okay? Because I want you to know what has happened that has led to this situation of him riding into Jerusalem on that Sunday we call Palm Sunday. Jesus had spent several days in the small town of Bethany. Three of his dearest, dearest friends, Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus, lived there in Bethany. And that's where Jesus would often stay with his disciples 
as they were heading toward Jerusalem. Lazarus had become a rock star. You know why? Because he had been dead and Jesus rose him from the dead. And part of what we're going to see is happening here is this whole multitude of people begin to follow him as he rides his donkey into Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover because Lazarus was there too. Jesus performed many, many miracles in his earthly ministry, right? He healed lepers. He healed blind people. He, he did so many different things. But the climax of our Lord's miracle ministry was a guy who had been dead for four days. And Jesus raised him from the dead. Word of that spread like wildfire all over that part of the world. So people wanted to come and see them, see uh, Jesus and also see Lazarus, I'll bet. So that's kind of the setting here. So as Jesus gets on his donkey and he begins to ride into the city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, by the way, during Passover, many, virtually all good Jews would come to Jerusalem to celebrate this great feast of Passover. Some scholars estimate that at a Passover, there were right around 2.7 million Jews who would converge upon that little city. Can you imagine? And so what's happening is Jesus is riding from Bethany on the donkey. All these people were following, screaming after him. And then word had gone into Jerusalem that Jesus was coming And also, he was the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. And so people were coming out from the city as well. There was like this huge convergence of tens of thousands of people as Jesus is doing this. They yell, Hosanna. The word Hosanna simply means save now. That's what it means. Save now or salvation now. Now, here's a really important principle or key idea for you. They didn't make that up. They didn't make Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, up. They are quoting Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. This is one of those what we call messianic prophecies of the Messiah. Okay? A messianic prophecy. In other words, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see over and over again, hundreds of times, there is this statement, this prophetic statement about Messiah, about Jesus. And all of those who refer to our Lord's first coming were fulfilled. Every single one of them. And this is a messianic prophecy. You'll see it there. It's, it's on the screen. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. So what are they doing here? They're essentially calling Jesus Messiah. Here's the deal. They got the name right. They got the title right. They totally missed his purpose. They totally missed his mission. That's what we're, we're going to see together. Okay, let's go back and pick up in John 12, verse 
14. Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Again, they didn't make this up. This is from an Old Testament book, Zechariah, written centuries before this happened. Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10 say this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. Look at this phrase. He will proclaim peace. To the nations, he will, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Why is this significant? This is significant because the multitudes thought that Jesus was going to be the conqueror, the conquering king. You may remember with me that during this time, Jerusalem was not its own nation, essentially. It was completely controlled in terms of the government, the politics, everything by Rome. The Israelites, the Jews, wanted to be independent. They wanted their own nation. And they had come to the conclusion that when Messiah comes, he will be the conqueror for us. He will give us freedom. He will give us liberty. He will give us everything we need to be self-governed and get out from under the impression of these Romans. But if you look at that Zechariah passage, you'll see that's not how he came. I mean, we see words like lowly, riding on a donkey. We see um, he will proclaim peace to the nations. Here's what I want you to get. Here's what's so important for us to understand. When our Lord Jesus Christ came to earth... And lived his life, had his ministry, died on the cross, rose from the grave. The kingdom he came to establish was spiritual. For those of you who have been part of our Beatitude series. Strangers living in a different kingdom. The kingdom of God. That's the kingdom he came to establish. Not as a conqueror. Not as a uh, war hero. Not as a political leader in any way, but as a spiritual king. Over in Luke's gospel, because all four of the gospel writers write about this event, about the triumphal entry, all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke has something very unique in his account of this event that I think is so incredibly helpful in us understanding how Jesus says The multitudes missed it. They missed it. They missed his purpose. They missed his mission. Look at, listen to these words over in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44. As he, that's Jesus, approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you had only known on this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. 
They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Here's Jesus's point. You guys missed why my purpose for coming. You've missed it. You have missed the kind of Messiah. You have missed the kind of king that I am because I came to establish a spiritual kingdom. I didn't come to be the conqueror. I didn't come to be the, the warrior. I came to be the prince of peace and establish a spiritual kingdom. Jesus is prophesying. This event occurred roughly 30 to 33 AD is obviously when Jesus um, you know, would be crucified. In 70 AD, almost 40 years later, the Romans came in, leveled, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple as God's judgment against his people. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. You did not recognize the time of God's coming. I wasn't who you thought I was. I'm not who you hoped I would be. That's essentially what Jesus is saying to this multitude. Okay, let's jump back in our passage in John 12. Verse 16 says this. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. Those are the people from Jerusalem that came out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. (laughs) Wow. The Pharisees didn't like Jesus much. Any of you know that? Pick up on that. The religious leaders of the day hated him. In fact, I want to do a little flashback. If you have your Bible, this will be on the screen. Let's go back to verse 9 through 11 in John 12. Because we get some greater insight of what's going on with these religious leaders regarding Jesus and even Lazarus. Look at verse 9. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Look at verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, as well as Jesus. They already had a hit on Jesus. Now they have a hit on Lazarus. Who are these people? Oh, they are the religious elite who also had an incredible amount of political power. They are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes who spent their life, you know, translating and writing the holy scriptures. We're not only going to kill Jesus, now we're going to kill Lazarus. Because this raised from the dead Lazarus thing that Jesus did is just drawing this immense crowd. We need to stop that. You see, the religious leaders didn't know who Jesus really was. They thought he was the competition. 
He's the competition. There's a book. I have a nice library, praise God, when you're able to get some good books and read good books and encourage you to be a good reader, especially of biblical and theological things. I think it's helpful. But um, there's a book I read. I was trying to think how long ago it was. It had to be more than 25, maybe even 30 years ago, called The Holiness of God. And the author is a guy named R.C. Sproul. Some of you might know that name. He's a, a biblical scholar and just was a great writer. In one of his chapters, and this is what I remember most about this book. It was a great book. It was kind of one of those life transformational books because I read it during a season in my life that I needed to hear that message. He talked about the fact that Jesus is the curve breaker. Now I want you to think School. I want you to think grading on the curve. Do you know that phrase? Most of you know that phrase, grading on the curve. Some of you know that phrase. Here's the deal. Okay, let's say that in the old days, teachers used to like walk around and hand your tests back. Do they still do that? I mean, that is so old school, I know. But that's what they used to do, okay? And so I want you to envision a teacher saying, I have your papers from the test And I want you to know how disappointed I am. The average grade on this paper was a D. And everybody goes, oops. And so they, she begins handing your paper back. And if it's a nice teacher, you know, it's flipped upside down. So nobody can see your grade. I'm sure that's a, you know, confidentiality thing. Now you turn yours over. Yeah. D, D minus, whatever it might be. Now, here's what you hope and pray. You hope and pray because you're such a nice person that everybody else got at least a D or an F. Maybe you are a higher D than some. You know, that's what you hope and pray. So you know what happens? You wait for her to say, I've decided that we'll grade this on the curve. What does the curve mean? The curve means, you know, I'm going to acknowledge that maybe I wrote a really poor test. I'm going to acknowledge that maybe I did not do a good job at all of teaching and presenting the material that was on the test. Therefore, I take some responsibility and I'm going to bump your grade up. So everybody gets a grade higher or maybe two grades higher. Who knows what it might be? And you're all just saying, yes. She said, I'm telling you what I was thinking about doing because I want you to know that one of your classmates got a 98 on this test. There's no curve. What do you want to do to the person who got the 98? You talk about taking somebody out. You want to take that person out. And if the teacher says, Susan, I am so proud of you. It's like, don't call my name out. People hate the curve breaker, right? And that's why I love this illustration that R.C. Sproul uses for Jesus. Jesus, to the religious leaders of his day, was the curve breaker, right? Because Jesus basically said to them, you have set up your religious systems. They are burdensome. You have all your rules and regulations. They're rooted in your power and your position and your status. And Jesus said, you are hypocrites. And they said, we're killing that guy. Because he's the competition. He's the competition. So the multitude thought he should be the conqueror. He wasn't. 
The Pharisees, the religious leaders, viewed him as a competition. Not only wanted to kill him now, wanted to kill Lazarus too. But there's a third group I want to bring up in this passage. But I need us to jump back to verse 16. Look at verse 16, John 12. At first, the disciples did not understand all this. Look at this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, you and I might scratch our heads and say, are you kidding me? These disciples lived with him, lived with him for three years and they didn't fully understand his mission, his purpose either. And that's what John is saying. And John was one of his disciples. He said, it wasn't until Jesus was glorified. I believe that's referring to his resurrection. And some of you remember, as you read the later chapters in the Gospels, that it says, when the resurrected Lord met with his disciples, he breathed on him, on them, the Holy Spirit. You see, what this verse is talking about is, we can't truly understand Jesus unless we have spiritual eyes to see. Amen? That's right. And that's why I love the message Kondo did a couple months ago at the beginning of our Beatitudes when he said, you know what? You can be a fan of Jesus and not be a follower of Jesus. My friends, there's a whole lot of fans of Jesus all over the world. Yeah, he was really cool. He did cool stuff. He was a really nice guy. And, you know, whatever their thoughts of Jesus may be. But even his own disciples didn't totally get who he was. Even though they said, you're the Christ. But they didn't know who he really was. And what his ultimate purpose was. And it wasn't until their eyes were illumined by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't until 50 days later on the day of Pentecost that the Spirit came in power. That those disciples changed the world with the gospel. Because they really understood who Jesus was and is. Isn't that beautiful? And that's why we need spiritual eyes to see. That's why we're told, Paul tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians, you know, the natural man, the unsaved person, cannot understand the things of the Spirit or the things of the Lord. God gives us eyes to see to understand who Jesus truly is. And that is through his indwelling spirit in our lives. Praise him. Praise him. So the disciples finally realized that he truly was the Christ. The Christ. As God the Father defines the Christ, the Messiah. The rest of the story for the disciples is the book of Acts. I love it. You know, the spirit comes in power. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Go make disciples of all the nations, baptize them, teach them to obey. And I'm with you always. Jesus said, you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. They weren't ready to do that until he rose from the dead and they received the spirit. And then they were full speed ahead on mission. Like you and I, who've received that spirit through faith in Christ, should be. 
we should be. You know, I um, this time of year, it's special to all of us, but it's super special to me because on March 30th, which happened to be Easter Sunday, 1975, that is, I'll do the math for you, 46 years ago is when I put my faith in Jesus Christ and became a child of God. I remember my spiritual birthday very clearly because I gave my life to Jesus on Easter in 1975. And my last 46 years (laughs) has been this journey of getting to know him better and better and better. And I am still incredibly blown away by who he is. And I so want that for you. The life of a follower of Jesus Christ is the life of a deeper and deeper and deeper relationship with him and knowing him. Not just knowing about him or knowing some of the Bible verses that talk about him, but relationally knowing him. I was thinking this morning as I was getting ready to to come to church, um, there's an old hymn. (laughs) It just really struck me. And it goes, turn your eyes, some of you know this, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth, what? Will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. My friends, that's the Christian life. It's not ultimately about, can I get more knowledgeable about scripture? Not a bad thing. Can I serve better in my church? Not at all a bad thing. But can I know and be enamored more and more each day by the greatness of Jesus Christ? And I am convinced that that's predominantly what heaven is going to be about. The phrase that I started with this morning Here's how I'd like to say it. You're not who I thought you were, Jesus. You are so immensely better. You are so immensely better. I was grateful when I was asked to, to speak this Sunday to hear that we have communion. <laughs> Because I thought, I'd love to go right into communion from talking about Jesus. And so here's what I'd like you to do. Hopefully you, you got one of these little packets with a wafer and some juice. And what I'd like us to do, and if you want to go ahead and get your little wafer out, that'd be great. What I'd like us to do is bow our heads And I'm just going to read out of 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and 24. And then just give you a a time of some quiet reflection. Maybe you can just say, Lord Jesus, I want to know you better. I want to know more and more of your greatness and your incredible love for me. And then I'll lead us in saying together, your body was broken. For us, let me read this passage, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. 
The Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take a moment before we partake of the bread. And just worship him. Just worship him. Think of a, a, a characteristic of Jesus, an incredible quality of Jesus that you are so grateful for, and just thank him for that. Or maybe, maybe the Lord has surfaced something in your life that needs to change. Maybe something that needs to be confessed. I encourage you to do that. Let's say together, your body was broken for us. Your body was broken for us. And let's partake of the bread. The Apostle Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25, in the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's again just bow for just a moment. You know, the Bible is filled with so much in the Old Testament about sacrifice and especially about a blood sacrifice an animal that was slain on an altar where blood poured out. Blood is required for forgiveness, for cleansing, for atonement. And that's why Jesus died, shed his blood as the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. My dear brother and sister, Thank him that he's done that for you, that he's cleansed you, and that he continues when you sin to cleanse you from your sin. And we'll say together, your blood was shed for us. Let's say it. Your blood was shed for us. Lord Jesus, we are grateful we know who you are. We are grateful that you are our Savior, you are our Lord, you are God in flesh. And one day, you will return as the conquering king. Thank you that we can be part of your kingdom now in this life. May we live like citizens of your kingdom 
Thank you for your spirit that opens our eyes to what is right and true, but mostly that helps us know you in your beauty and your glory and your majesty. Father, may that be the passion, knowing you better and better every day. May that be the passion of our lives. And that's what we commit ourselves to. In your precious and powerful name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.